Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. You can dream of doing these climbs all you want, but to actually like move forward and, and do it is like something else. You have to like be able to put yourself in the position of your dream. That's a scary aspect of all of this. Brett Harrington is a very skilled alpinist, rock climber, big mountain skier, uh, basically all around mountain woman. Yeah, like the, the Swiss army knife of alpinism. I find every style of climbing interesting. So I, I do pretty much every style. I'm not that good at bouldering or I wouldn't say I'm like an elite athlete in every style, but I do find every style interesting. Brett, will you tell us about Chiaro de Luna? That year I didn't have a partner in Patagonia, so I was picking up partners right and left. And then I found, I just looked at Chiaro de Luna and it looked amazing and I immediately wanted to solo it. It was 5'11". Chiaro de Luna is a 2,000 foot route up St. Exupery, which is one of the spires in the Fitzroy Massif. And it's a uh, pretty classic 5-11 minus, supposed to be really clean, good granite, very nice climbing. I've never done it, but uh, but it's supposed to be incredible. Yeah, so that line was just like attractive to me and the style felt really good. So at that point, I felt confident in 5-11 free soloing. So I just felt like soloing Chiao de Luna would be really fun for me. In a small weather window, Brett made her way to St. Exupery, looked up at the massive face above her, and set sail. Three hours later, she stood on the summit, becoming the first woman to have free-soloed a Patagonian spire. Across the range, her life and climbing partner, Marc-Andre Leclerc, was also alone, soloing up the corkscrew route on Cerro Torre. Like soloing in general is something that is so satisfying for yourself. It's like... No one else is there to affect your decisions. You're going there because you want to be there. And then you're always just like making small calls and small decisions based on how you're feeling or what the rock is telling you. So I think I've learned more about myself in soloing than I have in any other kind of climbing. That 2015 winter, after a head-turning season, the two Squamish BC locals would enter onto the global climbing stage. They were two young climbers entering the peak of their careers with a penchant for difficult routes in big, unpredictable settings. Like, why be motivated to do that kind of thing? I think the way it makes you feel when you're done, because sometimes it's grueling. Like, alpinism is not that fun. You have a huge backpack on your back. You're just walking for hours and hours carrying heavy weight. It's really hard on your body. And then you're completely drained after each alpine climb. But... The way it makes you feel afterward, it's like all the elements just bring so much life into you. At least it brings life into me. And then it's exciting. And alpinists are known to have short memories and because that's why we keep going back to the mountains. It's like we forget about how grueling it was and how exhausting it was. And we just like keep being drawn back because it's these like, it's almost like value that it brings to some, some kind of deeper level in your person or like an experience that's so memorable and so vivid that you'll never forget it. It's also dangerous. Marc-Andre, the subject of last year's breakthrough documentary, The Alpinist, 
passed away while descending from a successful climb on Alaska's Mendenhall Towers. It was just three years after that winter in Patagonia. Between then, Marc-Andre had packed in a lifetime of astounding cutting-edge climbs and solos. He'd made a staggering amount of decisions in high-consequence situations. He taught me a lot about reading mountains, and he was really attentive and practical when it came to making the right decisions. But he also wanted time to, like, connect with the mountains. So he would, like, go in and, like, spend a night just, like, underneath the mountain to, like, see what the energy would be like and see if it was inviting him up and if it didn't yeah like he was kind of like intuitive to listening yeah i always got a little bit more of like a power crystal vibe from him you know where he's like i'm gonna hike in and i can't by myself i'm gonna like feel the aura of the crystals and then i'm gonna do some totally insane climb that i you know that i personally can't even imagine and i was always like huh you know that's just very different than my approach (laughs) yeah but he was very practical with it too because like he he always talked about like the angles of the sun and how it was going to affect the glaciers and how it would affect rockfall. So the year 2018, when he, um, the year he passed away, like he had been waiting all winter to climb this project of his and finally it came in condition. So we hike up there and the, the slopes below the face hadn't slid. So it, they should have slid for us to do the proper approach but the snow had just not slid. So we decided not to climb his biggest project, even though the face was in perfect condition, and we climbed a different mountain instead. So like in that case, Mark was thinking like the mountain wasn't inviting him to it because the slopes hadn't slid. So kind of like using both the practical and the spiritual side to it. That's that's tough though, because it's like, you know, he can be so smart about making some choices in the mountains, but then still basically fall victim to unfortunate conditions, unfortunate, you know, it's like no matter how smart you are about minimizing risk, at a certain point, it's a numbers game. And if you're doing it all the time, the numbers, you know, occasionally don't work out. Yeah, there's a huge element of luck involved. If you get away with something, you don't even know what you got away with. And I've had so much luck in alpinism, which it blows my mind, which then also makes me think, when is this luck gonna run out? Like last year, I was climbing a mountain in the Canadian Rockies, mixed climbing, ice climbing, and then rock climbing at the top. So I, at the top, it was like slab, a big slab, and I put my rock shoes on. So I would blow the snow off my handholds, but the snow from my handholds was then falling onto my footholds. And then rock shoes with a small level of snow on it turns to very glass. So then it's just slippery ice underneath my rock shoes. Um, So I just stopped and froze and I lucked out that I found a passage that took me left and up and I was just purely lucky that I found a way. But had that not been there, I don't know what I would have done. (laughs) I think in climbing luck is definitely underestimated or just not talked about as much as it actually comes up. I'm curious, I feel like sometimes like I just don't have the, you know, enthusiasm or you might call it headspace for, for higher stakes decision making in the mountains. Like I just, I don't know, does that enthusiasm come and go for you? For me, it depends on how I'm feeling. I know what, I know exactly what you're saying because sometimes I feel like that too. Like I just don't have the right headspace in the morning and I 
can't take those kind of risks and I can't compartmentalize. But sometimes I wake up feeling fiery and alive and like, like, just like I can control it more so. So I think for me, it's day to day. I just make that decision whether or not I can make a different risk or take a different risk. Mm-hmm. Is, is that that you control more or that sometimes you just don't care as much? And I'm asking sort of from personal experience because there are times when you're like, you know, fuck it. Like, here we go. You know, it's like, it seems like the risk matters less and you're just like, it's worth it. I'm going for it. That happens a lot too. Yeah. Um, but those days that I say that, I usually wake up like feeling ready and good. And like when I'm moving, I'm like, I feel good inside. I don't feel like, like sheltered or like kind of scared. I just feel... And I think some people just feel that all the time. They just feel like they can take on whatever risks. It's almost like a feeling of invincibility. Yeah. But then are those the people who wind up having terrible accidents befall them? Those are the people that usually end up having, yeah, exactly. They take on too much risk without knowing the consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or even knowing the consequences, but just taking it on anyway. It's hard to know. Like Brett pointed out, big, audacious dreams come with real risks. In the mountains, that means physical hazard. In other pursuits, big goals come with financial, emotional, or personal stakes. The dreamer is presented with a labyrinth of possible outcomes, hurdles, and dead ends, a million ways to fail. Often, we are told that it comes down to positive thinking, unabashed optimism, unfaltering belief. Maybe there is a flip side to that coin. Alex, will you introduce Will? Today we're talking with Will Gad. He's a pioneer of modern mixed and ice climbing, but his resume extends far beyond climbing. He's also a great kayaker with the first descents of different rivers. He set world records for distance and paragliding, and he's really just pushed the limits of adventure more broadly. He's about the most interesting person you can imagine talking to. I gotta say he's a he's a sponsored Red Bull athlete, and I feel like more than most people, he really embodies whatever Red Bull is supposed to be embodying. Because you know, you're like, oh, it gives you wings. Like, I mean, he must he must like mainline Red Bull straight into the veins every morning just to have the energy to do all the things that he does. <laughs> it's possible. I mean, yeah, you know, you see like competition boulders and things who are sponsored by Red Bull and you're like, nah, you know, you see Will Gadd and you're like, he like lands his paraglider right into the kayak and then continues down a river and you're like, yeah, that's freaking Red Bull. (laughs) Today, we talk about the power of negative thinking. We are all just trying to make the best decisions possible along each of our own paths. A few people have thought more about risk than Will, and he has a lot to say about it. A little pessimism might just go a long way. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzka Hall. You're listening to Climbing Gold.
The universe is not like a happy, warm, fuzzy place where you think about you getting a new car and the universe like gives you one. You know, this is bullshit. What is real is that the universe is out to fucking kill you and it's your job to survive. <laughs> My name is Will Gad and I'm a climber, paraglider pilot, all around mountain sports adventure guy, live in Kenmore, Alberta. Before I could walk, my parents were dragging me into the mountains. So yeah, been a mountain sports guy my whole life and a bunch of different sports. I, I know you hate to toot your own horn too much, but can you give us a, a few uh, highlights of the different sports? Well, I think my the biggest highlight, my, highlight of my sporting career is surviving. Like, that's the thing I'm most proud of. I've got lots of like trophies and awards and stuff, but that's that stuff's pretty transitory. Whereas staying alive through all of that has been, you know, a tremendous amount of luck, but also some effort. At, at choosing the venues that I want to participate in and occasionally making, you know, okay decisions that resulted in, in good outcomes. And then also making really shitty decisions that somehow also resulted in, in survivable outcomes. But I, I know this whole emphasis on accomplishment, I like to do stuff as you do too, right? Like we're, we are performance driven, but for me, it's always been do cool shit, survive Yeah, though in that order. Though a lot of climbers sort of dabble in other mountain sports, like I ski a little bit, I mountain bike a little bit, but I don't do them very well. I think one of the things that really sets you apart as a climber is that the things that you dabble in, you also do really, really well. You know, it's like you have, you have paragliding records, you have, you know, kayaking first descents. Like, you know, like I've gone and played on the river a few times in my life, but I'm not any good at it. You know, it's not like I've contributed to, to a sport in that way. I think it's, it's rare for, for a climber to contribute to other sports in a meaningful way, the way that you have. Yeah, well, on the other hand, I haven't sold El Cap, so your obsession seems to work for you. Yeah, right? So it's a good, it's a good thing. But I, 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 in some ways, maybe that's interesting that I have been able to do well in a few different sports. But that's just how my brain works. I'm like a serial ADD sports person. Hmm. You know, it's I can't do anything for more than that that long, and then I just find things interesting. And so for me, you know, the spring I climbed my brains out and then got injured. And then now I'm paddling all the time. And that's really interesting also. And then that'll lead into paragliding season. And that's really interesting. And then that'll go into like hard rock climbing season in the fall. And then it'll be icicle bashing season again. And so it's it's just been this logical seasonal rollover for me. And, I, and I've tried to be obsessive about one sport only. And, you know, I, I was like a competitive sport climber for... I lasted, I think, three years, and and then I blew out because I just I can't I, I just I I go where the my interests are, and and that and climbing hasn't always helped me, but that doesn't mean you know climbing's awesome. I'm super stoked. Is that uh, is that why you're a multi sport athlete? Because you go so hard on the sport for so long that you basically injure yourself or overdo it, and then you ha and then you force yourself to transition into another sport for a while. Yeah, or I blow myself out mentally. I'm sure you're familiar with after you do some kind of big objective, you you feel kind of blown out. Hmm. And and often I don't want to go climbing after I've done some big objective in climbing, whether it's whether it's ice alpine, whatever. I'm kind of blown on that. It took everything. And and so then I get in my kayak and it's like, ha, a new world. I get to do this and it's hmm. so rad. And so I just I just I do really like switching the sports up and it has been useful for dealing with injuries. And I've gotten better at managing them as I've gotten older. But it is interest. Like what's fascinating in life is, you know, that's what where you should go in my view or where it's always worked for me is to do the things that I really, really care about. And then the rest of it sort of follows. So when you say that your your biggest accomplishment is surviving all these different sports so far, uh, I'm curious if you, you know, basically how do you evaluate risk across sport? You know, because I mean, we've talked to a lot of climbers and yeah. talked about evaluating risk within climbing. 
but you know, you have sort of a broader view of, of risk taking and, and, and risk in the mountains. Can you just start down this road with us? Well, these conversations are always difficult because there's this, there's these intellectual models and I feel like I've got pretty good intellectual models. And then there's the decisions you make when you're out there and things that will be useful, you know, and, and they're not, they're not the same, but I think if that we put thought into them, then we can develop some kind of model that works for us. And then we test that model. Is it hanging together? Is it not hanging together? And it gets better. And, and that's the same thing I use for anything in life. So when I, when I first started doing higher risk mountain sports, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to talk about, but I grew up in an environment where there are wakes at my house pretty much once a month. And so people were just dying all the time. That's the environment I grew I thought it was normal. You go climbing, you die. That's how it worked. And I was a little kid and little kids are really good at just accepting what is. They can't change it. So they have to accept it. And then I started getting into high school and doing a lot of these sports myself and, and realizing that that level of carnage was not normal. Like it's, most people don't grow up with like, you know, everybody who taught me to climb basically is dead. And, and I was like, holy shit, I, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to, I really like being alive. It's pretty great. At least I don't have experienced the alternatives, but they seem to suck to me. So, so in high school, I started to think a little bit more intellectually about it. It's like, okay, how does this, how does this work? And, and I, I think I over intellectualize everything to some extent and well, to a large extent. And so I, I started to really develop models for how I wanted to look at the, at the risk. So that, that was the first time I kind of thought consciously beyond, you know, it looks good or it doesn't look good or I feel good about it. Or I don't feel good about it. In high school, I started to realize that certain forms of climbing were a lot more hazardous than others, just in terms of outcome. And for me, everybody who went alpine climbing as a kid, they died, like pretty much as a rule. Very, very few people got out of that game alive that I, that I grew up with. And, and because my parents were climbers and I was in that environment, it was just really clear, go alpine climbing, get killed. And so I've gravitated more toward technical forms of climbing, mainly you know, hard rock climbing of one type or another, but also ice climbing, which is again, more dangerous. It, 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 wasn't, it was a pretty conscious decision actually. My best friend in high school was a wicked alpine climber. So we'd go alpine climbing one weekend, be terrified, almost die. And then he had to go rock climbing the next weekend. And we'd have this like sunny fun time. And I was like, it was pretty clear which one, you know, was more hazardous and it, and it got pretty intellectual. And then I got into kayaking as well and chose generally more technical water over really high volume um, water where you, it's less, it's more difficult to predict what's gonna happen. So that early on there was a skew toward technical and less complex environments in, in, in the sports I did. That's and and then that, what's that? well that's that's a that's a very slim distinction, you know. I mean, when oh, you're yeah. like like oh, I'm only ice climbing technical lines, so I'm really choosing safety. I'm kind of like, I think you know. I mean, yeah. As as a fellow professional climber, I'm like I understand what you're saying <laughs> rationally, but I think to the average person listening, they'd be like, wait, what? You know, yeah. You know, like you're talking about that, like alpine climbing was dangerous, and yet you're known as an alpine climber. You know, you're known as an ice, yeah, like, like you popularized ice and mixed climbing in, in a lot of ways. Like you know, you, you've helped you helped build half the gear for ice and mixed climbing. So yeah, no, I think that's a really good distinction. But you know, so I mean, so help me understand how you go from rationally knowing that something's really dangerous 
and trying to do it in the safest way possible, sort of, but still basically doing it. I mean, and, and that's kind of the crux of, of this is like, if you know that it's dangerous, like why, why do it? Well, I mean, that's, you, there's about 10 things in what you just said there that I think are really relevant. And, and the, the, first, the first thing that you hit there is that what we're doing in these sports, if you choose to go climbing, you are absolutely taking a larger than daily life risk. People die even going sport climbing. It's pretty rare. I, I don't think I actually know anybody that's died single pitch sport climbing. And yet, all the, you know, as Reinhold Messner said in an interview I did with him, over half the alpine climbers in any generation die. So that's the other end of the, the spectrum. And to an outside person, it all looks batshit. And, and to a certain extent, that's true. It is a larger than daily life risk. But what I've kind of figured out is that if you are choosing environments that are lower in complexity, then generally speaking, people tend to live longer, regardless of their skill and risk management. If you operate in these very complex, very high consequence environments, say climbing big alpine faces, generally people, no matter how good they think they are, live less long in that environment. And that was an important realization that even the best, the people who think they're very, very good at this, get killed, get killed. You know, whether it was John Lachlan, one of my heroes growing up who died, or so many other people that were supposed to be the best of what they did and the most experienced and the greatest database, these environments are inherently pretty unpredictable. So from an outside perspective, yeah, it's all crazy, but there's varying degrees of hazard and, and risk and consequence. And, and I've generally chosen to play in mediums like technical rock climbing and technical ice climbing where you certainly can get hurt and killed and people do, but the survivability curve is, is a lot higher yeah. in those environments. But yeah, yeah it's all it's, back. It's in. better. <laughs> yeah. I was it's like, better. I hear you. But then I'm like, Oh, then I see photos of you freaking soloing icebergs or whatever. And you're kind of yeah. like, you're like, ah, that, you know, that doesn't really scream safety. Like, I no, mean, well, I, I don't think I have. Yeah. Or like, you it's know, funny the, talking the, the Niagara Falls stuff, you know, where you're like, yeah, yeah, like it doesn't, it doesn't like scream safety. No. And, 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 it, and it's not safe. None of this is safe. And I think that's the first key to managing risk. And I call it risk engagement. We're going to make choices about what kind of risks we want to engage with. Are those choices reasonable for you or not? And to an outsider, they're all, they're all again, way too risky. But how we want to, what level of risk we want to engage with and, and be and dance with, because that's what we're doing out there. We're like making these decisions and we're dancing with risk. And we have to remember what our goals are. Or maybe it's to do that thing, whatever it is. You know, you, you, you solo El Cap, you've made the decision. It wasn't like you woke up one morning and you're like, shit, I'm going to go do this today. Like you put a lot of effort into figuring that out. That was a very well thought out risk and you, you knew the consequences. And I think that's for better or worse, I don't, I don't have a lot of issue with that. What I do have issue with is that I think a lot of people go into the mountains and they think what they're doing is reasonable and often don't have the skills to make that judgment in the first place. And then they're operating in an environment that is really high hazard, no matter how good you are and how experienced you are. It's complex and, and complicated, and you just can't make that anywhere near, quote, safe. And so for those people that go into that environment, and, and think, well, I'm operating within my limits and I'm safe. Well, no, you're not. And, and to me, that is a tragedy when I, when I read stories. And it's very clear that the people did not have very much experience in that environment and 
they get killed. And it's like, how could this possibly happen? Well, it's an expected outcome, unfortunately. Well, that, I feel really bad about that. But that's kind of the, the challenge of complex environments is that even people that think they have a good handle on it, you know, just due to the complexity of the environment, they just they just don't. But it's but it's hard to know that, you know, that's always yeah. crystal clear in retrospect, but like really hard to anticipate ahead of time. Because I mean, and, and one of the one yeah. of the takeaways from this whole season for us is that everyone we've interviewed about about risk, they all style themselves as conservative risk takers. And I mean, and yeah. I kind of say the same thing. And it's like, realistically, we're just not all conservative risk takers. Like you've climbed Niagara Falls, yeah. you know, like I've sold it all cap. Like, you know, we've done all these like, I mean, in the stuff in the Hennigan Falls, whatever with the, with, you know, like yeah. nothing about it screams safety. And yet, you no. know, we all we all style ourselves as very conservative, like, oh, no, no, you know, like, I would never, I would never do anything dangerous. I just like to go soloing yeah. on my rest days. I mean, that's not dangerous, you know. No. And so how, I don't know. I, I think that's a really good, that's a really good point. I, I don't think that I'm conservative and I don't style myself as safe. What I, what I, I recognize that what I'm doing is super high hazard and the people who say I'm conservative and I'm, and I'm safe, I don't have a lot of patience for that anymore. I've just seen it go wrong so much that, you know, if somebody's like, well, I've got two kids, but it's totally fine to be doing this because I'm conservative and I know my limits. And, you know, I only go climbing on Sundays when it's 70 degrees or better. It's like, no, dude, you're doing something really fucking hazardous and that's fine, but own it. And if you want to, and if you want to take that risk, then, you know, and you've made your decisions in life, then zero issue. But we, I, I think a lot of us you know, are, are living what I would call the grand delusion. And that is people believe that they can do these things and get away with them. And I don't believe that anymore. After the break, Will tells us how to teach a three-year-old to take risks. And we set some children loose on the streets of New York City. Just kidding. Or at least about the last part. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. Their Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing, training, and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. And do you think that's just uh, the byproduct of time? The fact that you've been doing these sports for so long and you've lost so many friends and you've seen so many things happen that you're just more awakened to the the latent risk in the mountains? 
I mean, you know, why do you think yeah. that your relationship with risk has changed over time? Well, I think seeing all these accidents and then also making errors and being honest with myself about those errors, whether I'm guiding or climbing on my own or, or Niagara Falls, like I look at that, I'm like, wow, you screwed that one up in these six different ways. And, and so I'm pretty honest about it. Like I'm pretty self, you know, I lash myself about those screw ups and try to get better. But I think if you do these sports for long enough, you either have to get honest about it or you, or, or you, you know, the inevitable outcome of doing mountain sports for enough years is you're going to get killed doing them. That's the reality. So can you play the game with the best tools you can bring and the best understanding of both yourself and the environment you're in long enough that it's worth that? Having that grasp of reality is, is really, really important to longevity because then you're like, yeah, I'm not going to just think this is all happy thoughts and I'm going to send it and it's going to be great. You know, that's really important to be like, you know what? I could get killed today. How am I going to, is it worth doing this for starters? Is that chance worth it? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And then um, what am I going to do to make that kind of stay someplace that I think is reasonable with the understanding that I could still screw it up and die? It's interesting. I, I can't help but wonder if some of this is the just the maturity of age, because, you know, I feel like I may be not quite all the way to your opinion yet, but I'm, I'm like most of the way there. But I see a transition just in my own climbing because, you know, 10 or 15 years ago with my soloing, it was a little more like, oh, you know, I'm just going to send it. It's going to be rad. Like, I'll just try hard. And over the last 10, 15 years, I've definitely I'm slowly transitioning to, to the point of view that, that you're expressing with like, you know, this is sketchy. But I'm, I'm just not quite 100% there yet. You know, I still have a little bit of like, ah, you know, it's like on the right day, you just go for it. It's it's great. I mean, yeah. at least a little bit. But, uh, you know, but you're uh, you're like almost 20 years older than me, I think. And so, uh, you know, I have to think that that if I make it to your age, I'll probably be saying the exact same thing. You know, because I just will have, <laughs> will have lost so many more friends, sadly. And, you know, they're just like so much more experience. I don't know. You, I just wonder. I mean, you've been climbing like 40 years. It's like, do you think this is just the natural progression? I think it's a, it's a natural progression for me, but it's not for everybody. You know, there's so many layers to all of this. Like you can talk about, you go out and you do something sketchy and, and it works and you're like, oh, obviously I have special skills that nobody else does because this worked. Does anyone really you think know? that? I'd certainly have. I'm like, I'm like out there soloing some piece of ice when I'm, when I'm 35, right? I'm bulletproof. And, and I'm like, I'm so locked on. Like it, this, this whole climb would have to fall off. Well, in the intervening years, I have seen climbs fall yeah, off yeah, totally. and I'm like, oh shit, that actually happens and I don't have any special sauce. Like I, I don't believe when I was younger, I was like, you know, I can, I can, I can hang on to my ice tools for, for literally hours. There is no way I'm going to fall off. And then, you know, I had a situation where my, my piece of ice blew out and I was left hanging by one ice tool and I was like, going to take some reevaluation here This, you know. And I think it's important to realize that that's the normal. There will be mistakes and errors, and that's normal. The abnormal is having none of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's abnormal. So I think some of it's getting older. But again, when I was younger, it was pretty clear to me that the people who are operating, I didn't intellectualize it to this degree, but the people who operated in more complex environments got um, injured and killed more. And I, I very deliberately chose less complex environments. But no, I think um, maybe it's worth noting that when you say complex environments, we could just as easily substitute in random environments, like basically the random risk, the like things that are just outside of uh, 
that, that are beyond our, our easy comprehension, like things that it's just hard to hard to understand well. How I break this up mentally is like single pitch sport climbing. I don't know anybody that's died. And then, and then you know, multi-pitch sport climbing. Now the consequence of, of something going wrong is higher and the environment's getting a little bit more complicated. And, and I know people who've died, you know, multi-pitch sport climbing. And then your single pitch trad climbing, not many people die, they get messed up, but more occasionally, and you start stacking these things. Now we're going multi-pitch trad climbing, now we're going multi-pitch alpine climbing, and the environment gets more complicated. The skills necessary to survive in that environment get more complicated until you're up onto like, you know, higher altitude or, or super technical speed alpine climbing or wherever, where a, a lot of people don't make it. And and the, this is like pretty trackable to me. It's it's and in each of these environments, the things that are out of your control, you could call them random, but I think they're kind of expected outcomes. Um, it, it, they grow. So if you're on a big face, there are so many possibilities for like the sun hits something that the permafrost is melted out and it falls on you. And, it, and it's an infinitely large piece of terrain above your head. You, you, that's expected. It looks random or oh, a rock fall random. But it's like if you stood at the base of the face for days, which I have, there any one part of that face is going to have rockfall. There's going to be wet holds. There, there, there just will be things that happen up there. And so you, you, those things aren't random. They're an expected outcome of going into complex environments. And people are like, that's a freak accident. No, if you, if you spent a hundred years in that face, you'd have a hundred, you have 500 freak accidents, you know? So the complexity matters and the consequence matters to me. And then you start making determinations about probability and then you get ultra intellectual and uh, and it falls, you know, it starts to fall apart yeah, to some extent. But it's because it, at a certain point, you can't really intellectualize it too much because they are. I mean, yeah, maybe they're not random in that they are somewhat predictable, but they are chaotic events. I mean, it's hard to quantify. It's hard to, you know, it'd be hard to put numbers on it. You just know that random things or, you know, that things will happen all the time. But like, how do you intellectualize yeah, that? You're just kind of like, ah, uh, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's like expecting the unexpected. You're like, okay, I'm ready for yeah. the unexpected, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> You're like, anything could happen. Yeah. Like, well, I think that's a really helpful attitude to have is that you expect the unexpected. You expect both errors and unforeseen things to happen. And if that's kind of your, you know, it's like those old Pink Panther skits where Cato would jump out behind the curtain and attack the attack the Pink Panther or whatever to keep him on his toes. And if that's your mindset going into these environments, like at any moment, something's going to go sideways, then it's in some ways helpful to a point. You know, when I, when I walk into the mountains, I'm not like, oh, I've been doing this for 40 years. I got this on, on lockdown. I'm like, what's different? What am I not seeing? What's wrong? Why is there rock fall in that gully? I want to guide over there, but you know, why is there that remnant cornice? Could that blow? You know, I, I'm 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 seeing everything. Hopefully, that can go wrong, and I and I call that like the positive power of negative thinking. It's it's a willingness to look at things as um, lethal and complicated, and my job is to figure out what they are before they kill me. Tell me more about the power of negative thinking. Well, there's always this positive power of positive thinking. Think happy thoughts and then, you know, the universe will give you like cars and dates and things like this. And, and this this drives me batshit because it is so preposterous and, and, and so full of shit. Like how you get difficult, complicated, high risk things done is figure out everything that can go wrong and think about those consequences and probabilities and dig through it and listen to your fear. Like, why am I afraid today? Like, well, what have I missed? 
and you, you, you chew on all of that. And you, people be like, well, it's thinking really negatively. You're not just thinking about how you're going to succeed and how great it is. No, fuck no. I'm thinking about like uh, how I'm going to get through and survive. And and so that's the positive power of negative thinking. And and it, it's a really valuable tool. And I try to teach it and, and share it with my kids. And we've got these little risk management games we play that, you know, maybe you'll be playing with your daughter one day too, because she's probably going to be like you, man, and you're going to have to figure it out. <laughs> What do you do with your kids? What what should I be doing with uh, with little baby June in a few years? <laughs> well, I bet June's got the fire like you do, and so there's you know she's gonna be like, and, and yeah, my kids are like a lot like me. They're fired up and they get out there in the world. They're like, ha ha, let's go play with the dangerous thing. And and right away I figured out that we were gonna have to have some kind of risk management program for this. Like, and I can't watch them all the time, and especially as they get older, I'll watch them less and less. So. Um, a whole bunch of experiences, but my kids and I developed this program. There's three hazard levels. So we'll be out there like hiking along in the mountains, you know, it'll be pretty cash. And, um, you know, I'll ask them like, you know, Rose, what hazard level are we at? And she'll look at me and be like, dad, this is bumps and bruises. We got this. This is chill. And I'll be like, do we need to do anything about this? And she'll be like, no, you know, just watch out. Don't, don't fall on my face. You know, maybe don't run on the sketchier parts. And then we'll be in like some more complicated environment where it's, uh, you know, maybe we're hiking along a trail with like a big drop off on the side and it's raining. And um, I'll be like, all right, Rose, you know, what what level of hazard are we at now? And she'll be like, dad, this is hospital terrain. This is serious. And to manage this, um, I'm going to hold your hand and I'm going to walk on the inside of the trail and I'm not going to sprint down the trail and I'm just going to slow everything down. And they do this. And then we'll be in some super high hazard environment like Manhattan, you know, at like 930 Monday morning and it's chaos. And I'll have them by the hands and I'll be like, you know, what hazard level are we at? And they'll be like, death, dad, death, you know, and, and they understand that if they run into that stream of traffic, they're going to get killed. And what are we going to do about that? Well, I'm going to hold your hand and we're going to watch the lights. We're going to follow these like New Yorkers. They're, they're pretty wacko, but, you know, they seem to know how to navigate this. So we're going to follow local tradition and we're going to get through it. But then we get to like a playground, right? And, and like kids are, there is no fear. I'm like, what do we need to worry about? And they're like falling on our heads from the top of the monkey bars, we got this and they attack. <laughs> and you could say that it's negative to teach them about risk, but I'm not trying to freak them out. I'm trying to give them tools so that when they get to that playground, they are stoked and they know what the obstacles are and they can focus on a path and go forth and you know, go after it. I'm, I'm for sure going to save that. I'm going to tell my wife as soon as we're done chatting today because I'm like, we're definitely using that. But so what? Uh, how old were your kids when you started teaching them about risk and evaluating risk they were they were pretty young probably three and seven hmm. yeah and, and and i think they were subconsciously picking up on that earlier you know but that that's when it became a little more formalized and i and i watched you know my, my daughter we went multi-pitch climbing the other day she led the pitch and she, she brings me up and it's like it's higher hazardous higher hazard right we're entering into multi-pitch climbing now the consequences are automatically more severe but her mind is on fire. You know, she brings me up. She's like, she's leading dad up the climb, you know, and it's awesome. And she's 14 and I'm terrified because this is a high consequence environment. But this is how her brain works. And she knows that it's a potential death situation. She's not operating under the idea that this is like safe. And she's like checking things twice. She's fully ADD like me, but she's like, her beaners are perfectly organized and locked down and everything's tight. And I'm like, I could see she's getting something really beautiful out of it. And, you know, 
it's it's worth it. But at the same time, it's it's high hazard, and and I don't think the argument will ever be finished in my mind about whether or not it's worth it, because that's what this boils down to: is it worth it to give her that experience? Is it worth it to climb Niagara Falls or Solo Well Cap? And if your answer is yes, then then it is. But to an outsider, maybe it's not, and that's okay. To the young guy, it is. Maybe to the old Alex and Will, it's not, and and that's okay too. Was there a specific moment that inspired you to teach your kids about risk? I mean, when you said at three and seven, was there some event that, that precipitated you? You know, like now it's time to teach my kids about this, or was it just sort of a natural evolution of of the way you evaluate risk? Well, I'm always thinking about consequences, right? And and Marie, my my older kid, was going across this log, and it wasn't a deep river, but it was like it's a pretty real piece of water, you know, with some force to it. And and she's she goes out across this log because she's she's feral. She's a bit like me. She's like, ha, cross the log, you know. <laughs> and and I'm looking at it. I'm going, oh, she falls in on the upside upstream side. I can probably still get her, you know, even if she pins in the branches under the water. I can probably yank her out. It's not that deep. It's a couple feet deep at most. But it's high, you know, and I don't think she's thinking about this. So I just asked her, I was like, hey, if, if you fall in on the upstream side, what do you think is going to happen? And, and that's your basic risk management question. You know, what's going on here? And, and she's like, well, I could like get pinned up against this tree by the current. And I was like, okay, is there anything you can do about that? And she's like, well, I can stay on the downstream side of this log. And if I am going to fall in, I'm going to like do everything I can to go in on the downstream side. And um, I'm going to hang on to the sticks. You know, some, she, she broke it all down. And, and that was the first time we talked about it in a more formal sense. It's like, what can go wrong? What are we going to do about it? Is it worth it? And those are three great questions to ask anytime we're all doing anything that's got hazard, whether it's like making the decision to pull the goalie and have a kid or solo well cap. It's like, like which of those you is got dangerous. Oh my God. Hey? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, well, like childbirth is super high hazard, right? Yeah. Like, you know, if, 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 you know, it's, it's kind of crazy, you know, the mortality rate is still not in, insignificant. Yeah. I don't know if you heard, but we actually had a pretty dramatic birth too, or where uh, our, our daughter came out not breathing and we spent a week in the hospital. Ooh. It was all like pretty, pretty intense. But yeah, so it, it yeah. was exactly that where it's like, you know, you're sort of like, oh, we're having a kid that should be chill. And then you're like, it's, it's really not that chill. You know, like life can really, uh, you know, take you by surprise sometimes. Like, geez. Yeah. I'm, I'm, but, first of all, I'm super glad that, uh, that that worked out well for you. Yeah, all, all worked out fine, but it was very dramatic for the, uh, for, for the week in the hospital. And we were like, whoa, it's like pretty crazy. But you got something really beautiful out of it. And I think that's what we get out of taking good risks. Like, you took a risk. You're having a kid. It's going to have an impact on your life. It can be really, you know, it's not a sure thing. Like it's, it's full on, but it's also massively beautiful. Now you've got this wonderful kid and, you know, your, your life will never be the same again. And I think any big project in life has both those elements. It's like, is it worth it or not? And, and, you know, if you make a reasonably informed decision about it while realizing your shortcomings and, and being realistic about it, then, then I think it is. But if you haven't done that diligence, then then it's going to be a little bit harder to justify difficult outcomes. I mean, the thing is, though, you have to admit, though, that you can't only focus on the negative because then that no. limits you from ever trying the, anything to begin with. You know, and, and actually, yeah. I think about this sometimes because uh, 
I don't know if this is true for kayaking because I don't boat well enough, but say for like mountain biking or skiing, like you don't want to look at the obstacle. You want to look at the gap, you know, because if, if you yeah. fixate on the obstacle, then you're going to hit the obstacle. Whereas like if you look exactly. at the, if the gap, then you can shoot through the gap. And so, you know, I feel like they're to some extent focusing on the negative gives you a little bit of that. Whereas, and, and I don't really believe in like manifesting or any of the, like this universal stuff, but I do think that if you're only focused on the negative, it's easy to, to sort of, you know, hit the obstacle. <laughs> rather than yeah. rather than hit the gap. But then at the same time, I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean with like visualizing the negatives in order to to mitigate them and to, to prepare for them and things like that. I taught paraglide for a long time and there was one tree on the hill. And if I was like, when you launch, whatever you do, miss that tree, people would fly into it. <laughs> it, was, it, was like, it was like a tractor beam. And so having that, that path of where you want to go is also a really good risk management strategy because then you start to realize when the path is falling apart or not. You know, it's like, I want to be at this place by this time and you're not. It's, it, it's not that, you know, now you need to reevaluate. Is it still reasonable to keep doing this? And so having a path is a, is a huge and very important kind of risk management tactic for whatever sport you're involved with. And then just to back up on what you said, I mean, it's, it's fun to talk with you about this because you've obviously thought, I'd like to interview you about this, but, but the, 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 there's stages to this, right? The time for the positive power of negative thinking is before you go to execute. So you figure out everything that's going to go wrong and then you come up with some kind of mitigation. And if you can't mitigate it, then is it still worth doing or not? You know, do you feel like your mitigations are solid? And then you go to execute. And that's when you that's when all that stuff goes away. It's like the primary goal is never to do the thing that I've set out to do. Like that's is like, especially if I've gotten older, it's like, you know, that's not the primary thing. The primary thing is to do this really complicated, really interesting, really rad thing with the best margin I can have. And if I don't think that margin is good enough and I'm, and I'm prone to error in that, then I bail. Like I fail at least half the time I go out the door, at least. But, you know, like you, I'm a pro athlete. It's Tuesday. Hopefully I can go back on Wednesday. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't or, matter. Or Thursday. Yeah. And just go or back Thursday. on Thursday. Yeah. 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 No, that that is, that's funny. I mean, I think when you say that you fail half the time, that that's also the nature of the things that you're trying to do. I mean, it's so ephemeral, the ice climbing, like the wind. It's like even paddling. It's like everything you do is relying on, on very random variables, you know, things that you can't control. We were like, oh, you know, yeah. like it blew heavy during the night and snow loaded on some weird slope. And now I don't yep. want to do the thing that I was going to do, you know, so yeah, like or you, to call that a failure is, you know, it's not so much that you fail as that you choose not to do certain things because conditions don't allow or whatever else. I think maybe that's you. I actually do fail a lot. <laughs> I don't get out the shit I set out to do. And I'm okay with that. And I, I think that being that okay with, with failure, like I sort of embrace it. I'm like, oh, I failed again. And then I go home and I like drink a lot of black coffee. And if it's a big project that blew up or something, I sit in the basement and I figure out why didn't I see something coming? What pieces didn't I put together that, that resulted in that failure? Maybe sometimes it is just conditions. You know, I, I went there and conditions sucked and I didn't see that coming. And I sit in the basement and lash myself until I feel like I've got a better handle on it. But that, I, I, that is one thing that I, I think people could do a better, or one of many things I think climbers, paddlers, pilots, whatever, could, could do a better job of is, is when you do have a, a close call or something didn't go your way, it's not just that something random happened. It's like something didn't go your way and why is that? And what can you do about it? What can you learn from it? And that introspection and like 
ruminative, you know, a psychologist would be like, that's negative. You're over ruminating on, on th this experience you had. But I think it's that rumination is super important and not just be like, oh shit, that's part of the sport. You know, I, I took a whipper, but I, I didn't land on my head. So we're all good. It's like, well, why'd you take a whipper? You know, like what happened? That sucks. <laughs> Let's figure it out and, and, uh, and, and change it, you know? I'm kind of curious if you think that that the way that the climbing community or sort of the extreme sports outdoor community evaluates risk has changed over time because you've been climbing long enough that you've seen, you know, several generation of alpinists come and go. You know, do you think that the way that we as a community evaluate risk has changed at all? I think there's more of an emphasis on, quote, risk management, but not very much of it is taught. You know, the, the Instagram or whatever is full of like 50 ways to build a belay anchor with one carabiner and like, you know, your, your, the lint in your belly button. <laughs> but that's like, that's not what gets people killed generally, right? Like most of the time the anchors to totally blow up and everybody like, you know, goes the distance. It's usually because of decision making and, and that's, but how much of that is out there? And I'm guilty of this. You know, I wrote a book about ice climbing. There's very little about, um, education and and how to think about risk it's like it's really easy to think about like training or systems but that isn't the shit that actually keeps you safe it's your it's your understanding and your attitude both of yourself and the environment you're operating in that results in in outcomes so how do you work on those things and i don't think there's a really good setup for that yet i'm, I'm trying to do some things in my writing and in my social media that I think I hope will help people like talk about the fact that I screw up a lot mm -hmm. you know, before people didn't talk about that. Like I put up there, I almost got really messed up the sport climbing the other day. Cause I was too, too egotistical to use a stick clip, you know? And I was like, ah, we don't need this shit. We're good at this. We can send this. And then, you know, my partner pitched and like both of us almost went off this ledge and I like caught her and it was, it was totally avoidable and stupid as most accidents are in hindsight. So I write about it and I think we as a community could, you know, whatever community we operate in could do a better job about talking about our errors, sharing them and, and discussing it. And I don't want to talk too long, but I, I do want to just touch on that quickly because it's important, I think, is that we all look at these errors and in hindsight, we're like, we wouldn't do that. So we're, quote, safe. But there's an infinite number of errors out there to make. And we'll keep making them, you know, that's, that's what we do, unfortunately. So an accident report is not making you necessarily safer. It's something you can avoid, but your own accident report will have something you've never thought of. And, and if you do these things long enough, you're going to have accidents. I certainly have and, and other, you know, we all do. So I don't feel very smug when I read an accident report. I'm like, oh yeah, that could be me. And sometimes it's like, well, I'm not going to do that. But then I read one and I'm like, oh, yeah, I definitely could have done that. Most of them I'm like, yeah, I could see how that would work. But it's very comforting to say, oh, no, that's not me. I'd never make that error. I wouldn't be there at 2 o'clock. I would have been off that face by 125. You really think 35 minutes makes a difference? <laughs> you know, you're on the face, dude. You're out there. You're playing the game. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think there's some smugness in, in thinking that way that I, I try to avoid. After the break, Alex shares his own near misses and Will eats too many hot dogs. Element is a zero sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. 
Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes, free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbing gold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbing gold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. I always uh, used to read accidents in North American mountaineering and kind of have the same experience yeah. where you read the accident reports and you're like, oh, what an idiot. I would never do that. But then, yeah. but then, yeah, the more you read them, the more you're like, you know what? I, I do do that. You know, it's like I've just gotten away with it more. But then it makes me wonder yeah. how much of, you know, both of our perspectives on risks have just been informed by all of our near misses, like basically the collection of near misses that we have over the years, where it's like you get away with certain things or things go sideways or you see an accident happen near you, you know, things like that. It's like, because I know that I personally am starting to collect a bunch of baggage, you know, where it's like, oh, I remember this terrible thing that happened to this other guy at the crag or like that time we had to carry mm -hmm. some guy to the helicopter or like, you know, that time that I pulled a hold off, but thankfully I didn't fall off. I mean, like I've had a bunch of so long near, near misses where like had it like a Mission Impossible style where I was like down climbing this overhanging face and both the footholds broke off and I was just left like dangling from these jugs. And, and you know, it was fine. It was easy terrain. And but I was like, that's about as dramatic as it gets, you know, and like the whole foot thing blows out and you're just left dangling and you're like, whoa, you know, it's like and basically you slowly collect, you know, baggage like that. And I think that with enough of it, eventually it starts to shape your perspective on risk. And I mean, and, and I guess in, in theory, it sort of helps you mature, you know, <laughs> helps you. Uh, I don't know. What do you think about my, my, my baggage idea? Well, first of all, I'm really glad you survived. Yeah, that's, that's rad. Well done yeah. on that. Like, and, and if you, if you, you know, I think I really like one of the quotes you said. It's like everybody thinks they're making great decisions in, until the moment they either, you know, have an accident or get killed. If you're honest with yourself and you're like, wow, you know, both my footholds blew and I was left hanging on these holds, like that's pretty close to you know a bad outcome like yeah it's not yeah, yeah it's not great it sucks and so you when you're down climbing next time maybe you're like wow i've got to like really is that actually good or it, it does mess with your mind and I, and I would argue that you're you and i probably are both getting closer to what i would term reality than we were when we were younger when you're younger you're like bad accidents happen to other people and then you're like, well, actually, some of those people, they're not total idiots. Like, you know, my friend died and he's a pretty smart dude and yet he's gone. And how do, you know, how do I think about my own climbing? And, and at some point you realize that it, 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 it's just high hazard. And what you want to do is do your best that day to make good decisions. If you make good decisions, then the outcome becomes less important. So put another way. 
like my, I really value my decision-making process as much as I value the outcomes of that process. So I can have a bad outcome and I've d done a really pretty good job of decision-making. You know, I, I did my diligence, I looked at it all and I didn't, you know, some low probability thing happened and it's still not that I, I, I made a shitty decision. You know, it's it's almost cliche that, that as we get older, our risk-making process changes, our tolerance maybe goes down a little bit. Like basically we just start to evaluate things a little bit better. But that's always easy as we get older to be like, oh, well, that's too dangerous. You shouldn't do that. But then, you know, there's always the young guy who's just like F it and goes out and does incredible things. And I mean, you know, I think for me, I saw that with somebody like Marc-Andre Leclerc, where it's like he's doing things that I couldn't even imagine being done. And you're like, that's is a totally different level. And it's not even that he was like trying to be sketchy or thought that he was being sketchy. I mean, like who knows about his whole process, but basically he was out following his own dream and like having adventures in the mountains. I guess my question is, is it is it necessary for, for young people to just sort of go for it in order to achieve things at, at a high level? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know, like for both of us, probably our most cutting edge physical achievements are maybe behind us, you know, hard to say, like, maybe I'll do some more stuff. Maybe you will too. But, you know, <laughs> but like, you know, in a way we're both old guys just like ranting about risk in our, in our, in our comfortable office. You know, it's like, is this just the natural order that like, oh, we just slowly like lose the fire a little bit and like, or I mean, you know, we both have families now and we're both like, we want to live and, and, and like hang with our families. So obviously we're going to rein in a little bit more. But the thing is, like, I don't know if I would have done all the the things that I'm proud of doing if I had this exact perspective on risk 15 years ago. I think you said that really well. Roll tape on that and throw it up, <laughs> throw it up in the show. But I think it's, I, I think that's true. You know, the it, as you get older, whether you become closer to reality or more conservative or, or whatever in your decision making, I think it's inevitable that as you understand the mountains and you see more you you you'd be crazy not to go well wow that's this is really serious whether you're you know but on the other hand if you're young and that's the way your brain works and i think that's part of this i'm becoming more accepting of you know we're not normal like you and i and and all the climbers out there we're not normal like we like going into this environment that is high hazard and especially when we're younger we're less concerned about that hazard and that's how our brains work and you know I, you've given talks to like rooms full of people whose brains don't work that way they're like they don't need that they're pretty happy going to work and like barbecuing on the weekends and restoring that cool car in their garage they got something cool going on every one of them i guarantee that but they don't need that experience of wow i'm really out there and i'm committing everything and i'm going for it in this way you know, climbers and so on, we're kind of abnormal that way. And as long as we're operating with a reasonable understanding of the hazards, then if one of us gets killed, I don't think it's a tragedy. It certainly is to the family and it, and it sucks. It just sucks. But it is an, it is an expected outcome. You, you, you play in high hazard environments, the environment's going to win some of the time. So as we get older, we, we start to really believe that. At least I have. I've been like, okay, I recognized it when I was younger, but I basically don't go alpine climbing anymore because like every fourth time I, I guide, I have a rock go by or something. And I'm like, I don't like this place. <laughs> I'm going over it, man. I don't, I, don't, I don't have the tolerance for it. I, I 
stuffed people into bags and, and worked on shitty trauma. And, and you do that and, it, and the world doesn't look the same anymore as it sounds like you're also starting to figure out. Yeah. But yeah, but then you're like, oh, is this just like, is this what it's called to lose your edge? You know? Well, I don't think it, yeah, it's an interesting perspective. I think when you're young, you have an edge because it hasn't hit any rocks yet. And and so it's very sharp and you're like, oh, I'm good to go. I can just swing with wanton enthusiasm at everything. And, and my sword is sharp and usually it works out. And as you as you hit some rocks and your blade, yeah, your edge does get duller, but you also probably have better odds of surviving. And now, for example, you've got a kid, I've got kids, like it's pretty great to be around for them. And when people check out early, and a lot of people do, that's the worst part of this is not that the person's gone. But you look and there's like, you know, the three-year-old, where's dad, where's mom? That is, that is, that is really heavy and hard to, to handle. A lot of the things that, that we do when we evaluate risk, you know, might work on an individual level. And like, you know, you and your partner might get away with it for that day on that mountain. But if, uh, and, and this came up because I was talking to a, a friend of mine who runs, actually, she runs the educational, the, the kids groups in Yosemite, basically like takes all the kids through the park. And she was talking about risk assessment for, uh, for these kids groups, because basically what you do as an individual, you know, can get you by maybe your whole life. But when you start multiplying those risks out by the hundreds or by the thousands, then it means that on any given day, some kid is going to break their leg or like is going to fall out of something and like break their arm. And it's like, basically the, the level of risk that we're comfortable with an individual is not really acceptable for big groups because it means that they're going to be negative outcomes all the time. And I was like, huh. And when you think about that for climbing, you know, like if alpine climbing was being done by a thousand people a day, like, you know, what, 150 of them would die every day or something, you know, it'd be like this totally insane. Like basically the risks just like really don't work when you start to multiply them out. And, you know, even for something like me free selling all cap, I'm like on that day, I felt solid, I prepared, I was ready, I was into it. But, you know, if a thousand of me set off to solo all cap that day, like at least eight of them would have died from like random things happening, you know, like or unexpected or just like, I don't know, the, you know, their shoe blowing out or something. And, and I guess as an individual, I was comfortable with that level of risk. Let's say like, you know, 0.8%, like, you know what, for a life dream, it's worth it. I'm doing it. This is, this is, you know, this is my moment. But, you know, if I was making a decision for a group, I'm like, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable telling a thousand school kids to set out up OCAP, you know, because they're just not going to make it. <laughs> well, here's, I think what you just said is really, really smart, but I'd push on it a little bit and be like, you are a group of a thousand. If you go and sell LCAP a thousand times, you know, by your own math, you die eight. Or I'm um, just guessing, but and, maybe. And, yeah, you know, just a number, right? Pick yeah. a number. We don't know. Like you could, and, but I think that's important to recognize is that over time you are a group of one. So any one day of alpine climbing, you're pretty likely to survive. And you're like, ha ha, I'm a genius. And then you do it 10 times in a row and you're like, I got this shit on lockdown. I am so good at this risk management. I can do anything. And you do that for 999 times. Now you're a group of a thousand. And then that one in a thousand thing happens. And all of a sudden, it's not looking so hot. And that's, I think, what climbers kind of need to recognize is that, you know, when I was young, 99% was pretty good. If somebody was like, 99%, you make this move, I'm like, I'm down. Yeah, <laughs> What's the issue? Right? Right. <laughs> and, and now, as I've gotten older, I realize that even 99.9%, that's one in a thousand, 
isn't actually that great odds. Yeah, it means that every, every I'm three years you die. And you're like, wait, right. every three years is not good enough for me. Yeah, you're like, That's... no, if I'm doing that every day, what's every, yeah. what's, what's yeah. every three years is not such, and, and actually the odds a lot of times are, are probably somewhat higher. So I, I, I think what you just said is really, really good. And I just extrapolate it toward groups. If you go into complex environments a lot, then you know, you're, you're in that very high multiplication environment where the outcomes are often not that great when you multiply internal times external. So with my daughter, I very much hope. Now, I haven't pushed her into climbing. She's just psyched on it because her brain kind of works probably a little bit like mine. But I hope she doesn't become an alpine climber. I'm just totally selfish. Like if that's what she needs to do, then I'm going to support her and... and uh, but I, 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 I hope she. I hope. I hope that the more technical, um, less complex forms of climbing, fire her up rather than needing the better get the her into a, of it. Better get her into a World Cup climbing. You know, like get psyched on comp climbing, like indoor gyms. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Get, get her to the bowling well, gym. I, I think she'll be good with that for a while. I was too, but at some point I woke up and I was like, I'm climbing a grade harder and I'm living in a chalk gym. I am no longer psyched on this game. And and then I got into paragliding, which is the ultimate super complex, high risk sport. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know it's, I broke just pretty much every rule, but it was beautiful. And at that time in my life, that's what I really, really needed. And and I, I don't regret it, but I'm suffering under no illusions about paragliding or, or any of the sports that I do. You just touched on the fact that paragliding is beautiful, right? Emotionally, what is the defense of these risks, right? Like, why do this for you? Like, is there a joy that it creates inside of you? Is it just sanity for how your mind's built? Like, why? What is it for you? I don't think my mind is normal. I need high intensity, meaningful things. And, and that's a different definition for different people. But for me, meaningful is like something so interesting and so engaging that the rest of life kind of goes away. And I, and I just get into this beautiful state of doing what I'm doing. It's, it's really, really interesting. And I love that part of it. Then I love the execution of it. Um, but, you know, again, Messner said that it's not defensible. It's totally not defensible. Like when you look into that family's eyes in the hospital and you're like, your kid's not coming out. That's not defensible. No, that day was no fucking way was that day worth it. But in sum and in total, it is beautiful and meaningful and important, I think. And it's especially important to, to recognize that that outcome of, of death or, or serious injury is present. And then to use that to make better decisions during the day, to be suffering under no illusions that this is like all safe and we're just sending and it's good to go. And in, in, in an individual instance, it's not defensible for anybody. It's just not. But as a sum of what it is, I, I think it's for me necessary. Maybe it's brain chemistry. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest, why it resonates so strongly with me. But it does. And and so I'll keep doing it. Yeah, I think that's an important point that any individual day or any individual risk is not worth is not worth it. But a lifetime of taking carefully calculated risks is worth it. I mean, at least I think for me personally, one individual solo is, is not worth it. You know, like it's not as if I've ever had so much fun free soloing a route that that it justifies, you know, the, the level of risk. But 
but for an entire lifetime built around taking on climbing challenges, working towards those challenges and, and, you know, ultimately achieving a lot of them like that to me is worth it, you know, because it's provided a structure and sort of a purpose to like an entire life. And so I'm like, that's clearly worth it. But any individual day, you're like, no, I mean, I could skip one day. Like if I knew that I was going to die free souling, I could, I'd obviously give it up, you know, but the, but the aspiration is to spend a lifetime working toward it without ever crossing the line. I think that's why in like the harsh light post accident, everybody looks at it and is like, well, clearly that, you know, all these things led to the accident and, and it was either a stupid cause I wouldn't be doing it or, you know, they should have seen it coming or, or whatever. There's often really harsh judgment after accidents, but in hindsight, that's all really, really clear. And if we knew that going out that door that day, it was going to kill us, then of course we wouldn't go We'd be like, nope, staying in bed, drinking coffee. Right. But in some, and I don't know how comfortable this will be for, with you, Alex, and, I, and I'm not trying to push back on you. But in some, if we keep doing these things, that one day will inevitably come. And then can you still go out the door with that in your head? And with me, the answer is I can't go out the door to some places anymore. Like I'm not doing big alpine faces anymore. I, I, I just don't think I can. I, for me, that's where my line is. And for each of us, we have to draw this line where we're like, that doesn't make sense. And it may be arbitrary and bullshit. I think we've kind of touched on that. It probably is to some extent, but you got to make a decision. So for me, it's like, I'm going to spend most of my time in relatively low consequence, relatively low complexity environments, because what I've seen is that overall, that gets me what I need, you know, but it, it, I don't have to be in that super high consequence complexity state that I get on big faces or whatever. Some of it is just satiety. I've eaten enough hot dogs. I don't need to eat 50 more today. Yeah. But um, to use a bad analogy, but but some of it is also um, just recognition of that hazard and 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 recognition of my own limitations. You know, like I'm not worried about losing my edge anymore. I don't give a shit. Hmm. And and maybe that's what allows me to 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 look at it differently. If I want to, you know, like there's probably 10 days a year where I'm like I'm going to spool up and I'm going to do something that's pretty, in my view out there and i still have that if i want it it's there and when i when it gets presented when i roll up and it's like that is the thing whatever it is and, and i'm and i go i i can enter that state really comfortably still and, and quickly and i'm i'm happy there um sometimes i wake up in the middle of the night and i'm like what were you thinking exactly <laughs> but at the time i'm good i'm good with it um but it is i think it's a it is some of it's probably biological and some of it is like you've carried people out on your back now that have hit the deck and you're like you see that and you're like wow this person's you know this person's not an idiot i think when i was younger i was very comfortable with anybody who had an accident was an idiot i've got good systems and education i'm good here and, and I, the ex extreme arrogance of that soon started beating me over the head in my in my early 20s and, and mid 20s and, and i don't think that way today so some of it's probably biological my brain doesn't need that same stimulus anymore some of it's probably education and, uh, and I think some of it is just flat out realistic. Thanks, Will and Brett, for sitting down to chat with us about these experiences. It's not always easy, but it's important. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was written and edited by Lauren Delani Miller and me, Fitzko Hall. Additional production help from Marco Seiler, Gonzalez, Evan Phillips, Austin Syadak, and Anya Miller. 
Music today from Brennan O'Connell and Cordelia Zars and me. Our executive producers are Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cahal for Duct Tape and Beer, and Jonathan Redsick and Ben Endy for RxR Sports. Thanks for listening to Climbing Gold.